I think another critical thing is to try and not have a lot of wasted space. You've got to use hallways to get to different rooms. But when we design our homes, especially on like a second story where you're trying to get a stairway in that house and, and you want it to come up as close to the center of that house as you possibly can, that way it's the shortest distance to the front of the house and the back of the house. So you don't have any really long extended in my opinion, wasted space in a hallway. That's Steve Griffith. Steve has been thinking about hallways and storage and kitchens and such for a long time. You see, he's been designing, building, and supplying residential structures for the past 60 years. He started his career in building as a hod carrier for his uncle's home construction business when he was just 14 years old. And it was that first construction job that inspired him later to study architecture at Purdue University. Over the past 60 years, Steve has helped with the design and construction of over 10,000 residential units. That's a lot of know-how at building homes. In this episode of this podcast, Ask Matt, Matt Ask, we explore some of that experience as we talk to Steve about important lessons he has learned about designing and building a good home and how to avoid design mistakes. And now, listen and learn. You've tuned in to Ask Matt, Matt Asks, the podcast designed to help you build, defend, and retire on your real estate empire. Starring real estate lawyer, investor, and entrepreneur, Matthew Griffith. Bringing his 30-plus years of real-world experience and wisdom to this podcast without charging you a single billable hour. Matt is helping his listeners achieve their dreams to transform their financial lives from rags to real estate riches. All you got to do is listen and learn. Remember that nothing on this podcast constitutes legal, financial, or tax advice. What you're about to hear is offered purely as educational information and not as counsel that you should rely on. Seek your own separate professional guidance from licensed professionals in your state before taking any action on today's topics. Matt is not your private lawyer and is not responsible for your conduct. And now that you've been duly warned, here's your host, attorney Matt Griffith. Hi, everybody. This is attorney Matt Griffith, and this is my podcast. This is actually our very first podcast. This is our first recording. And I'm pleased and honored to have a very knowledgeable real estate expert who happens to be my father, Steve Griffith. Say hi, Steve Griffith. Hello, everyone. Okay, so today we're talking about how to design a house, whether it's a new house or a rehab house. This is a this is an area that a lot of real estate investors hear very little about. Um, they watch a lot of uh, television programs on on cable, and uh, they see oftentimes people who don't really know how to design houses. Designing houses, just <laughs> kind of kind of funny. So we've got uh, someone with uh, expertise today uh, to talk about how to design a house, the things that go into designing and building a house. So we've got some real expertise today. All right, so let's get at it. So let let me let me ask you, what could you possibly teach real estate investors about designing and building homes? Why should they be listening to you? Well, it kind of depends on what their knowledge is, but I've done this a long, long time. I feel I've been very successful. I've um, 
been a consultant to many architects representing developers and help them refine their uh, plans for multifamily and condo projects. So I'm feeling pretty qualified. How'd you get started in uh, designing and building houses? Well, it goes way back to when I was a very young teenager. My uh, Uncle Chester built custom homes and I started working for him probably when I was 12 or 13 years old, uh, sweeping floors, cleaning up. I worked for him part-time weekends and after school. So that got my interest in it. And then I ended up going to Purdue University at uh, Indianapolis in architectural engineering technology. So, and I developed an interest in it um, through that program. So what did your professional career look like? What did you do after you after Purdue? Well, kind of a long story, but I saw an ad on the bulletin board at Purdue of a company called Wright Bachman that was looking for a draftsman. And um, <clears throat> so I applied for that position, and I found out the day I uh, applied that the position had already been filled but they asked me if I would consider uh, another position of material expediter. And it was basically a step up. So I took yes, that I would. And um, they built a lot of detached garages and they had um, plans and lists of material that they used for that. And so they gave me a set of plans for a detached garage and asked me to make a material takeoff for that. And uh, I did, and then they compared it, my takeoff to their uh, stock programmed list that they had, and they were a little different. They actually discovered that they were missing a few pieces of lumber, and my takeoff was more accurate than those, but I'd been out there pounding nails and knew what it took. So I actually got a promotion my first day they hired me to the next step up. But I did do some part-time drafting uh, with them also. And then I did a lot for individuals doing houses and stuff. So I still actually started out as a draftsman, but material expediter. Um, after a while at that position, uh, I was asked to uh, to be a, uh, <clears throat> after they, the job kind of developed and I went from more than just takeoffs, I actually went to uh, purchasing material and actually getting bids from subcontractors and putting the whole package together. The, the company had a very large remodeling division. They did about $5 million a year, which was in the 60s. So I'm not sure what that is in today's dollars, but it's a lot of money. Besides, they had a random homes division that they built about 150 homes a year around Indiana. So... I was asked then to got a promotion again to be an assistant superintendent, then eventually attendant. After that, an operations manager. And eventually, I was asked to run their component division. I became one of their division managers, and they had a very large uh, truss, roof truss, and floor truss plant and wall panel plant that I managed. 
So that was my basic background. Let's back up a second. So it's amazing to me how many real estate investors really have no experience in in home construction. So there's some terms that you threw out that they may not they may not even understand. Some of my listeners won't won't even know what those terms are. So what what is a draftsman versus say an architect? What's a draftsman do? Well, an architect really a draftsman really puts does the the groundwork. He he draws the lines on the paper. And someone else, like an architect, does the basic design. He'll work from sketches from an architect. Most architects have a drafting uh, pool that they have working on their projects. And and even though the architect stamps the plan, uh, the work is really done by that draftsman. And uh, now that draftsman is replaced with CAD drawings. And it's kind of the way we operate now. I design most of the homes with actually your input. And then we turn it over to a gentleman that does the, the CAD drawing. So he does the grunt work for us electronically today. Yeah, hopefully he doesn't watch this uh, or listen to this podcast. And know <laughs> that we think he does grunt work. So, <laughs> now, so he's what, really excellent. He does a really good job. I agree. Okay. So what what is a takeoff and that's an important term for real estate investors that are trying to do their own work or they're trying to determine whether a bid they got from a from a contractor is a decent bid or not yeah i think you got to have some understanding of what a takeoff is in order to properly price out a rehab project or a new home new home construction project so what's a, what's a takeoff you basically sit down with a set of blueprints and in my case, I think of it as if I'm physically out there building that. And I start with the foundation. Well, at Wright Bachman, I actually did all the foundation work too. I, I calculated the amount of concrete needed, priced it per yard, the amount of blocks and mortar and sand needed. You just make a list of everything that's required to do all the phases of that project. And then you actually price that out. A lot of people do base their bids and stuff on square footage from other projects and everything, but it's much more accurate if you actually sit down with and, and figure out exactly what is needed and come up with a list of all the parts and pieces and components that are needed for that project. Yeah, that takes a lot of time and a lot of real estate investors don't want to take the time to do that. And consequently, they don't, when they get a bid from a contractor, they have no idea whether it's high or low on labor costs or uh, material costs. Well, I found over the years, even a lot of lumber stuff, they kind of throw numbers at it. They, they don't get really detailed. My approach is it's much better to be as accurate as you can. And then you always put in a little bit of a waste factor. Always going to be some damaged material, some miscuts or something. And so you need to allow for that besides your exact takeoff. That's what you start with and add a little bit of a waste factor to it. Okay. So what do you think are the, uh, let's say the five most important features of a well-designed house? What should people be keeping in mind when they're rehabbing or designing a house? Well, let's say you you take a house, for instance, 
it's the total package that you've got to look at. I don't know of any five things that you're limited to. You've got to look at the total package. But I mean, certain things like today, kitchen is a big component, whether it's gourmet kitchens, big islands, people are with the virus and everything, they're eating in more, they're not going out to restaurants. So the kitchen is an area that's become very, very critical today because the kitchens are going to be used more. And I think that's coming back. I think we got away from eating at home and going out a lot, but it's reversed itself with the conditions today. And a lot of architects try to cram too much in a small space. So I think it's critical that you look at all the different elements and make sure when you're putting a, a bathroom in with a door next to a vanity that you have room for all of those pieces and you're not having to, to notch a piece of casing. So you have to look at, okay, how wide is my casing? How far is that door away from it? And like, make sure everything fits in there. I think another critical thing is to try and not have a lot of wasted space. Hallways really bug me. You've got to use hallways to get to different rooms. But when we design our homes, especially on like a second story where you're trying to get a stairway in that house and, and you want it to come up as close to the center of that house as you possibly can, that way it's the shortest distance to the front of the house and the back of the house. So you don't have any really long extended, in my opinion, wasted space in a hallway. Everybody always needs storage. They collect so much stuff. Everybody's a little bit of a hoarder. So they, they have a lot of stuff they need to hide. So closet space, storage area, uh, I think they're very critical. Yeah. So what are, what are some I think, of them? I, I think lighting is another big thing. Okay. Uh, you want natural lighting as much as you can in these areas. Sometimes you have interior rooms that you can't. And you need to do things like uh, skylights and solar tubes to get some some natural daylight into those areas. Yeah, yeah. People don't like living in cave, ca uh, caves, generally speaking. So what are some of the mistakes and the flip side of it? What are some of the mistakes you see when you, you've, you've been through a lot of houses, not only houses you built and designed, but other people's houses? What are some mistakes that you see when people build and design houses? Well, I usually get upset when I walk through somebody else's house because I see so many things. But for instance, um, there's a builder, I'm not going to mention any names, but I went through one of his projects in Fountain Square and the decks on the second floor were at a higher elevation than the floor level of the house. So you actually had to step up over the door sill to get to a deck that should be lower than the floor. Snow buildup and all of that would build up against the door. I mean, it's crazy things like that that just really irk me. <laughs> yeah, hopefully that guy's not listening to the podcast either. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't but, mention any names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so what are, what are other maybe, common mistakes? Maybe, if, maybe he should listen to it and feel guilty and... And think about what he does a little bit. <laughs> Maybe he should. Maybe he should. What are some other mistakes that you see? Common design flaws. Well, they, a lot of people mix different styles of homes. And 
they just throw really detailed piece of a Victorian into a craftsman house. They, they don't really understand the styles of homes and it, it's just confusing to intermix things. They see something that they like and they stick it in their house, even though it doesn't belong in that style of house. Yeah. Okay. So um, as you know, it's getting harder and harder to get building permits these days. Um, uh, government never gets smaller. It always gets bigger and more complex and they keep passing more and more rules and seems like inspectors are trained yesterday and then they quit the job the next day. Um, so what was the regulatory environment for building houses 20, 30 years ago? Like how hard was it to say, uh, get, get a building permit or get past inspections versus today? Well, go back to the sixties when I really applied, actually applied for building permits at the beginning, it was very simple. You didn't have to have a lot of details. You basically had a floor plan and elevations, and maybe a cross section, and you paid your fees. They processed it in about 15 minutes. You walked out of there with uh, your green blueprint or a green permit in your hand. So it was not a lot of red tape, not a lot of checking. Uh, you just had to have the basics. They scanned it. Uh, in their mind quickly and didn't look at any details and issued you a permit. It's polar opposite of that today. I have a, I have a theory that uh, builders back, well, there, I think there are two things that have contributed to the increased complexity of building permits and inspections. But one theory is that there are a lot of really lousy builders in the seventies and eighties and government responded to crappy builders um, uh, with more regulation, more red tape, getting harder and harder. And of course, the building code has gotten more and more complex. So it's a little bit harder to submit plans that comply with all the building uh, building codes. Um, um, it, yeah, but, I think that's probably the biggest factor. Yeah, well, there's always a few individuals that mess it up for the masses that are doing the right thing and are conscientious about what they do they want to build a good home they they don't want to have problems they don't want to have callbacks but you have people that throw up stuff that really don't know what they're doing it, it's kind of funny if if some teenager helped his grandfather build a doghouse sometime he thinks he can be a builder because he's experienced and they go out there and and they think there's nothing to be in a builder and it's a very, very complicated thing to do it correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's getting more complex because the building code is getting more and more detailed. It just keeps growing. So there are more and more things. Have you seen, so if you compare the building code today, what, what it takes to get a house built today versus say in the 60s or 70s, what's the, what's the change look like for you? Well, it's much more complicated uh, the review process is extremely long. I think they have a lot of inexperienced people there. And uh, they, they, they seems like they want to find something that's wrong and they don't feel like they're actually have done their job properly. 
if they don't nail you for something, they don't find some changes that, that they force you to make, whether they're right or wrong. And it, it always seems like whenever there's a seminar or whatever, whatever the subject of that seminar is, that's the item that they're all looking for. And sometimes it may not even apply to a particular house, but that's what they look for. And they try and nail everybody on that, what they just learned. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. It seems like every inspector has his own checklist of things that the inspector thinks is important. So you get a different inspector, you get a different list. And I've also been shocked at how the interpretation of the of the code varies from inspector to inspector. One inspector will accept one application of a product and the next inspector will make you tear it out. Really yeah, inconsistent. I had experience that the, the code's really long. And unless they're really studying it constantly, uh, refreshing themselves all the time, they have a memory in their head of what things should be. But sometimes if you press them, it's very difficult then to actually find it in the code book. Mm-hmm. What they're trying to enforce. Yeah, I think that's true. It's their personal opinion of what they think it should be, or it's the way they did it when they were a builder and not necessarily a code that actually governs you. Okay, so you mentioned Fountain Square earlier. Fountain Square is an area southeast of downtown Indianapolis. It was an old historical neighborhood. It had a big growth spurt in the late 1800s from like 1880 to 1910, 1915. A ton of houses. It's an ethnic neighborhood. There's some neighborhoods around it. And uh, there were a lot of uh, uh, Italians and a lot of Germans settled in that area. And a lot of those um, communities, those were the craftsmen that built those houses. As you drive through Fountain Square um, today, in uh, in in twenty twenty one, and you drive you drive through there, and you see the new houses that are being built over the say the past 10, 15 years. What's your what thoughts go through your head as you drive by and you see all the dear, different shapes and colors and different building material applications on those on those uh, newer homes in Fountain Square? Well, I, I think there always should be a variety in the homes. I, I think subdivisions where every house looks alike, they just painted a different color, are terrible. So I think a mixture of different styles and variety is good. But to be quite honest, um, they're building some chunky things in everywhere. But uh, Fountain Square is a prime example of that, that the old established neighbors in in that area actually hate those new houses. They uh, they just don't fit. I mean, you have, you know, a street where 90% of it is traditional houses and you throw in uh, the wedge houses and some of those things that really don't fit in the neighborhood. Yeah, what's a wedge house? Well, it's a right triangle sitting on top of a box. <laughs> they're ugly they look cheap i hate them so and, and, so and it's a fad you know they've been around you can see they're slowly going away too there's not near as many of them being built it's through the history there's been fads of different things that 
were built. And it basically, you can look at those and say, I know when that was built. Prime example, when I started in this in the 60s, my uncle was building these long, low ranches with a hip roof, and they had Bedford limestone uh, on them. And then it progressed into having the limestone go halfway up the house and have brick above it. Then it went to where there was limestone on the bottom and sandstone on the top. And then after that, it went to the limestone on the bottom and Miami stone. A lot of people may not know what Miami stone was, but it was a manufactured concrete product with a rough mm-hmm. face, one edge. Mm-hmm. And it mainly came in gray and believe it or not, pink. So they were great houses with a, a gray limestone on the bottom and a pink concrete stone on the top. They were great. <laughs> So, but you know, all of those houses were built in about a 12 or 15 year period from the end of the 50s to the end of the 60s. So, the wet houses are going to be dated, and everybody's going to know that they were built during this time period because they'll be gone. Yeah, you hope so, right? Although, no, they will be. History will determine they'll be gone, just like all the other fads. So what do you what do you do if you buy a wedge house 50 years from now? What do you do with it? I guess you're stuck with it, right? Because you can't change it. I mean, it'd be a lot of work to change the roof roof line. Yeah, it, it depends. I mean, <clears throat> you know, a lot of people, if, if the price is right, the area has inflated to where the property values are much higher. It may be worth doing it. I mean, there are places here in Florida where I'm at on the coast now they'll buy a three-quarter million dollar house and tear it down to build a $2 million house there. So it wouldn't be a big deal if the neighborhood had inflated to the point the value was there to take that roof off and put a more traditional uh, roof on it, rechange the the front elevation and, and make it blend more with something more appealing. So I think people... I think people are still building wedge roof houses today because they see them in the neighborhood. Um, and then, yes, but and I don't think you see near as many as you did five years ago. So you you think um, so? Hopefully, it does fade out because I do think it's an ugly house. Um, but um, yeah, but I don't think people know know the difference. So they look at it and they think that that's a modern house. So how do you explain to somebody that that you can build a modern house, not a not a more traditional, you know, it doesn't have to be a craftsman or a Victorian. It can be a modern house, um, but it doesn't have to have a web wedge roof. How do you get that across to somebody that there are different ways to build? You just show, you just show them examples of good modern architecture and compare that to the ugly wedge house. And I think once they have the two side by side, whether it's, you know, drawings or pictures or uh, different elevations, uh, I think they can see the difference. And even though I didn't really like it, we, we've done a couple of modern houses. We did one on an olive that had an industrial interior, but a modern looking exterior. And it's so much more attractive, got so many great comments that a wedge house would never get. 
Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of it is the building components. You know, what do you put on it? Right. So that I know the house right. you're talking about, it had stained cedar siding on the second floor and it had beautiful porous stone on the first floor with a fancy yeah, entrance. I, well. I actually saw that stone here in Florida on a bank and it was so great. And I did a little research, found the stone. It was expensive. Uh, we only put it on the first floor and we had a lot of windows in the front. So there was a lot of square footage of it, but it is great. And, and just that whole design, we did some unique things like uh, rain chains instead of downspouts. Um, you can do some things that have class and be modern and not be classless like a wedge house. Mm -hmm. So what's your favorite architectural style? Uh, Virginia Tidewater. What's that it, look like? <clears throat> well, it's a little hard to describe. It's actually English Georgian, the American version of English Georgian. And <clears throat> people can look up Georgian architecture and get a pretty good feel. By its name, it's located mainly in Virginia, mainly on the James River, on both sides of the James River. And in Williamsburg, uh, that area there, a lot of plantation houses, uh, like I say, mainly through Virginia. And it's, it's on the little rivers that feed into the James River that where the tide comes and the water level of those rivers raise. That's where it got its name, Virginia Tidewater, because most of those were located on some body of water, which was transportation for them back there. And when the tide came in, those areas raised, and that's where its name came from. So was that an English style of home that was modified in, in, in America, what, in the 1700s? 1600s? Yeah, 16 and 1700s. Uh, I built a house uh, in Morgan County that was the John Roth house that was built in 1765 in Surrey County, Virginia. It was on the John, uh, was on the uh, John on Smith Plantation, which was John Smith from Jamestown, if everybody knows their history. And John Roth actually didn't build the house. It was named after him. John Roth married Pocahontas. And given a little history lesson here, Actually, he was from England and he moved Pocahontas with him back to England. Pocahontas actually died there. But a descendant of John Roth built this house in 1765. John Roth was 100 years before that. And I actually did a historical reproduction of that house. And it had just great details. The, the brick on it was in a Flemish bond. Uh, it had a water table three feet above the uh, grade. It had what they call an English basement where the basement's about three feet out of the ground so that the windows are not below grade. They're actually above grade. The floor level, like I say, was elevated about three feet. So I love that type of architecture. Yeah, a lot of details. Yeah, takes a lot of planning to to build a house properly, or you can just slap it together and it looks looks yeah. junky. That, that house actually 
the kitchen was a separate building because they had slaves. And back then, they tried to separate the kitchen from the main house because of the heat it generated and because of the fire hazard. So on this site, there is a foundation of what was the kitchen. So um, I actually took that footprint and connected it to the back of the house so that the kitchen was attached. And it had a huge cooking uh, fireplace in there that had a five-foot-wide throat by five-foot-high. I had a blacksmith make the crane that would hang the pots over the fire for cooking. And I thought about doing the, the, the kitchen out separate from the main house, but I couldn't get your mother to bring my food up from that house. So I, I was easy on her and I let it be attached. Oh, well, how kind of you <laughs> <laughs> to actually attach the kitchen to the main the structure yeah. of the house. Yeah, that would be what we put in the category of good design. <laughs> yes. Okay, let me ask you one one um, uh, final uh, question about design. So, if you were sitting down with someone, let's say you're at a coffee shop, and uh, and and you meet somebody for the first time, and they say they have a blank piece of paper, and they say, "I'm going to design. I'm going to design my 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 next home." What's the one thing that you would want them to be sure of? You say. Well, make sure you do this. What's the single most important thing people should do when they're designing a house? Well, I, I think it should be designed how they live. Prime example is the kitchen we were talking about earlier. You know, are you formal or you have a kitchen and, and a formal dining room? Is Do you eat off of a, a huge bar? Do you have a harvest table in the middle of your kitchen? That area is where people gather. When you have visitors or family or just your immediate family, every day you're eating three meals. Majority of those are in that kitchen area. Everything is generated there. And I would, I would start with that and design the house how you live. But you have to be very careful not to be so uh, specific to you that you put in things that's not resellable. It has to appeal to the masses, but also meet your needs. Yeah, that's good advice. That's good advice. Okay, so I listen to Ellen Alda's um, podcast, which I highly recommend. He has a podcast called Clear and Vivid, and his podcast is about primarily about communication. And um, that's, that's what I do for... Uh, my day job is um, I'm in a communication business, um, lawyering. But in any event, he asks at the end of his podcast, he asks his guests seven, what they call seven quick questions. Okay. Well, I'm going to ask you five. Ready? Okay. okay. Um, number one, who had the biggest impact on you either personally or professionally? Well, Personally, it would probably be my father and indirectly my grandfather. Um, my father was killed by a drunk driver when I was 16. But up until then, he, he taught me about hard work, being kind to other people. He was always helping someone do anything. So, and he got that from his father. Um, as, as far as the business side, it probably was my Uncle Chester because 
you have to remember back then he was a builder and a builder meant we did everything from pouring the footings, laying the block, framing. We did drywall, insulation, electrical, plumbing, painting. We laid the stone. We laid the brick. We roofed the house. Um, he, he did sub out the HVA occasionally, but we probably did half the jobs. So you got to know every phases. He, he wasn't specialized. He was special, specialized in building the entire house. So he was a big influence. I also, when I was at Purdue at Indianapolis campus, um, I, there was an architect, uh, Bill Davis, and he had been very successful. He started out doing single family, but he got into multifamily and condos. He repeated the same buildings over and over again on a lot of projects. So he basically was taking the selection of about 10 buildings that he had refined and just put them on a plot plan. And he used the same details, the same buildings, same foundation over and over again. He made a lot of money at a, a young age. He retired and then he became a professor there at Purdue part-time and he just enjoyed it. I had him for four or five classes and he really got me <laughs> looking at history, looking at Greece, and Rome at the different architecture. You have to remember most of our styles all came from Greece and Rome. Um, and he got me generated and uh, you, you will know, we spent many vacations touring around looking at houses that are hundred years old or 150 years old all over the country. So he was a big influence. What's the one thing you wish you had done differently in life? Probably when I had the opportunity, uh, when I worked for Wright Bachman, I could build a house every few years and you basically did it at cost. Uh, they financed it for the employees. You didn't have to get a construction loan or anything. They paid all the bills, actually helped you get your mortgage on it if you needed to. And I didn't take advantage of that. The houses that I did build, I made quite a bit of money on, but I could have made a lot more if I would have done it as often as they possibly allowed you to do it. And I, I would probably would have built more houses for my personal use. Like I say, I gained on every house that we built, but I, I could have done more. What's the biggest threat you think we face today as a people? Oh, probably liberalism and what's happening in the country today. Uh, it's crazy out there. Um, I don't recognize this country right now. Hmm. What's the biggest opportunity you think we have? Well, I think the opportunity is still there, but it, you that it's always been. It's a little more difficult. You've got to, the same things. You've got to put in the effort, put in the work, do the research that you need to do. But in the United States, anybody can be successful, but you've got to work at it. Uh, it's not just going to fall in your lap. It does for a few people. Family money filters down. But you know, the old saying that uh, first generation uh, makes the money, second generation uh, keeps it going, and third generation loses it. And I think there's a lot to that. And But that opportunity to be that first generation and be very successful is always here, and hopefully always will be.
Yeah. What's the funniest thing you've ever seen or heard in your professional life? Oh, well, well, it really wasn't funny at the time. It was actually pretty irritating. But the day when I think about it, it, it is pretty funny. I had a project over in Ohio. It was a multifamily project. It had a very complicated clubhouse with a lot of glue lamb beans and stuff. And we had several uh, very heavy duty uh, hangers for these glue lamb beans. Uh, Simpson actually made them for us out of quarter inch steel. We had to send them detailed drawings. They had them all welded up ground down, sanded, primed, and everything for us. And it took weeks to get them. Back then, you could get things in, you know, a couple days usually. But these were so special, it took us like five or six weeks to get them. The superintendent over there kept calling me about those hangers. And I did all the research, all the paperwork. Everything showed that they'd been delivered to him. Well, for about a week, he bugged me the whole time. Uh, where's my hangers? Where are my hangers? And I kept asking, you know, did you look here? Did you look here? So finally, I made a trip over to Ohio to try and find these hangers. I researched. I looked in the uh, the little pods that the contractors had, looking through where other hangers and stuff were stored. Looked in the clubhouse. I looked all over. Finally, went back to the construction trailer to talk to the superintendent. And he's sitting there at his desk. And his desk was really a Formica top across the end of the trailer. And there was a bunch of boxes stored underneath there. And he had his, he was using this one particular box as a footrest. And I could see he had been doing it for a long, long time because it had mud on it from his boots and everything. And finally, I asked him, I said, what's in that box? And he was, oh, I don't know. It's been there for five or six weeks. I said, really? Let's check it out. We opened up the box and there was these damn hangers that he'd been bugging me <laughs> forever. And he'd been sitting there calling me on the phone with his feet on the hangers, bitching because he didn't have them. So it ticked me off at the time, but it's pretty funny today. I, I would have asked him to give me gas money to drive back. <laughs> <laughs> I should have at least made him buy my lunch or something. All right. Here's I'm what happy to get out of there. Yeah, I bet. Okay, here's my last question for you. And thank you for your time. How do you really know when you're right and the other guy is wrong? Like, how do you really know when you're right and he's wrong? Well, I, I guess, you know, I'm referring to this as builders and developers and stuff. I think you know you're right and they're wrong when they copy what you're doing. What does that mean? What do you mean by that? Well, you build a house, you put certain details in it, you put a certain floor plan, and they copy what you've done. So you know that what you've done is better than what they did. So they're acknowledging that by duplicating or at least trying to copy elements that you put into your homes. Yeah. Flattery, right? Yes. Uh, imitation, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. I appreciate you doing my very first podcast. You'll be one of many, but you'll go down in the annals of history as having done the first one. So thank you. Appreciate it. Okay. And, uh, I hope you're very successful at this. Yeah. Thank you very much. 
You've been listening to Ask Matt, Matt Asks, a podcast for real estate investors seeking to better their financial lives and obtain financial freedom through win-win real estate deals. Remember that nothing on this podcast constitutes legal, financial, or tax advice. This podcast is offered purely as educational information and not as counsel that you should rely on. Seek your own separate professional guidance from licensed professionals in your state before taking any action on today's topics. Matt is not your private lawyer and is not responsible for your conduct. To learn more about Matt, visit his law firm website, IndieBizLaw.com or his virtual law office, indianavirtuallaw.com.